When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, Frankie, who was that guy who whacked that uh, Archduke of Australia? You know, the guy who started the First World War. You mean Archduke Franz Ferdinando? I don't know, Paulie. Was it Oswald? Nah, I think his name was Giuseppe Principelli or something like that. Hey, boss, what do you think? Alyssa, you idiots. It was not the Archduke of Australia who got whacked. It was the Archduke Franz Ferdinand of Austria-Hungary. And it was no Giuseppe Principelli. It was Gravillo Princip. What, did you guys have some bad gabagool or something? You guys both wouldn't be such bombats if you started listening to that podcast, Bro History. It's one of the best history of geopolitical-related podcasts in the world. And they talk about the origins of World War I and other major historical events. And they also cover modern conflicts, adding historical context to complicated geopolitical issues. And it's no excuse not to listen, because you can easily find Bro History on every podcast platform, like Apple and Spotify. They go listen to Bro History. And why's my envelope light? This is Danny Abdeljabar. Henry is away, and uh, not to spill the beans, but he has had a child. I'll let him come on the show and talk about it another juncture, but he might be away for a little while, and we decided to have an episode anyway. So today, I've got a friend of the show, Joseph Solis Mullen, author, journalist, research fellow, political scientist, and generally smart dude. What's up, Joe? How's it going? Hey, Danny. It's real warm. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> I'm sweating bullets. It's 88 here in Michigan. Oh, woof. That's hotter than Puerto Rico right now. Yeah, this is outrageous. So I'm sweating. <laughs> That's all I'm doing. <laughs> and you've probably got your uh, fans and ACs off right now to keep it nice and quiet in the room that you're in, right? Oh, yeah. Just like me. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, hopefully you don't sweat for too long. Um, today's episode, you know, like I said, Henry's out, decided to bring you on to talk about some stuff that we love talking about. Um, but you know, I wasn't thinking that this is going to be a super long episode, but generally we end up talking for a long time anyway. So let's see where it goes. Right. All right. Um, but today we're going to be talking about aliens because Henry's not here to tell me otherwise. So you're going to have to deal with that, Henry. <laughs> um, I just wanted to, to give you a little, um, interesting, uh, uh, footnote. I don't know if you heard, but, uh, NASA, uh, just today, had a live stream. Today's May 31st, by the way. Uh, had a live stream about the uh, UAP task force, right? So that's the Unmanned Aerial Phenomenon uh, Task Force. And uh, basically, they were talking about all of their findings. And I feel like I always get let down with these things, but I always get really, really pumped when they're about to happen. And during this um, 
live stream, there was a bunch of speakers that talked about a, a variety of like concerns and findings related to uh, UAPs. And this one guy, Dan Evans from NASA's uh, Science Mission Directorate, he spoke about things like safety concerns, you know, uh, about the potential of like aliens, right? Uh, and um, but generally speaking, just risks to air safety, right? Like these unmanned aerial phenomenon could potentially crash into a plane or like disrupt uh, air traffic, which was the boring part about it. And of course, I'm, I'm trying to figure out what's going on. Now, the download that I got out of this, Joe, is that basically all of the data that we have that's good that NASA's using in this is publicly available, but they still haven't shared it, right? It's not like classified documentation. They haven't really shared anything. They shared one uh, uh, video uh, and, and picture from... Uh, a, a regular plane uh, and said, oh, this is nothing. You know, this is the only thing that we can share with you today. But what's what's interesting is that that chair, uh, uh, the, the chair of NASA, the NASA team, uh, David Spurgle, he was saying that, you know, basically the, the reason why a lot of uh, this information is limited, the classified information is, is not necessarily because of the subject matter of what they're taking pictures of, but because of the sensors that they're using to take the pictures with. And he said specifically, it's like, hey, you know, the U.S. Navy can take a picture of the Statue of Liberty with, from an F-16 or an F-35 or something like that. And that picture is now classified, not because the Statue of Liberty is classified, but because the camera that they used to take it with is. And I'm thinking to myself, well, just then don't tell us what you took the picture with. <laughs> just show me the picture. Um, but yeah, what do you what do you think, man? What, what's your where, where's your headspace on for aliens? Oh, man, I don't know. I mean, I. Uh... <laughs> certainly way outside uh my domain of of expertise you know i mean uh from what i understand interstellar space travel uh would would require technologies that are that are beyond anything we have at this point uh but also that uh, you know theoretically there are billions of other galaxies out there and that <laughs> mathematically speaking it's almost certain that at least one of them is capable of producing uh an evolved life form uh of some sentience mm -hmm. so uh, i'm i'm open-minded uh <laughs> I, I certainly hope that uh if if any do show up that they uh are more peaceable than our own species um but that's that's pretty much it i, I don't know i mean i guess I'll, i always figured that a lot of the stuff that we that that was spotted especially given where it was spotted being so near uh, you know, military installations and stuff that it was either our own, our own government's experimental mm -hmm. prototypes, or maybe, you know, some other foreign government, maybe trying to spy using some sort of, you know, really you advanced equipment novel technology, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that, you know, the government was maybe aware of this, but didn't want to freak Americans out uh, that mm -hmm. that stuff was going on. You know, maybe they're doing it too. So I don't know. I, I don't, uh, I don't take any strong position. Uh, I've, I've seen no evidence to persuade me one way or the other so well i i guess it's good to, to kind of keep a um, middle of the road opinion on this one because <laughs> you know it's really easy to to you know to point at examples of things that can't be explained and even easier to point at examples of things that can be explained there's this one uh bit from this live stream that i found really hilarious and it was uh um these researchers at a uh, um uh, were studying uh, uh, cosmic background radiation or some shit like that. And they started seeing these unusual radio bursts come up in their data. 
and they just could not explain it. And it was a, like these patterns that are not, I guess, I'm not a scientist, so I'm going to butcher this. It, it was an unusual radio burst pattern, and they were you know, starting to get kind of excited and thinking, maybe, hey, maybe we, we finally got E.T. You know, they're, they're contacting us, right? Turns out that when they were reviewing the data, they noticed that the pattern of when they would see this particular uh, uh, radio bursts happened around noon every day, right? Like every business day, Monday through Friday, while they were working, it was like almost like clockwork around noon. They're starting to get these patterns. So it's like, what's going on here? Turns out they were picking up the microwave, in their lunchroom. <laughs> Those microwaves instead of radio bursts, which is, I don't know, man. <laughs> That's great. So, I don't know. Apparently, according to, to one of the guys over there, you know, there, there are over 800 cases of UAP sightings uh, this year, and, you know, only 2 to 5% of them are p- potentially truly anomalous. The rest of them can be explained, but I'm just like, all right, show me the 2 to 5%, then, you know, like, yeah, let me I would the, love let me to, see the goods. <laughs> yeah, I would love to have that that information be open so that the actual scientific community could look at it mm-hmm. uh but we'll just have to wait and see i suppose yeah and, and that's that was part of the uh uh the, the warning that they were giving they're they're trying to destigmatize this uh first of all so they can get high quality data from trained professionals like you know there's still this stigma uh in the military about like saying you know hey i saw something weird you know uh and then reporting that there's still a bit of a stigma there and also there's a stigma for the scientists, you know, that legitimately want to research this, you know, as, as, a, as a legitimate science, scientific research initiative. Uh, and a lot of people, like, look down on them. They're like, oh, you're studying UAPs? What are you, crackpot? What is this, phrenology? You know, like, what is this <laughs> pseudo-nonsense, right? Um, so, yeah, I, I agree with you. Make it open <laughs> so that I could talk about it on Pro History more. Yeah. <laughs> Cool, man. Well, thank you for suffering through that. Uh, I'm just kidding. We're not talking about aliens for an entire hour and a half today. <laughs> We're actually here to talk about something that you're actually good at, <laughs> and that's China. Uh, so you recently put out a pretty interesting article, which is why I hit you up. And uh, you wrote a few thousand years of Chinese foreign policy in a nutshell. Uh, and, you know, I, I didn't quite get the the word count on this, but it was a shorter one. So it's an easy read. I'll, I'll make sure to drop this in the uh, in the description or something like that. But uh, when we were chatting about it uh, over text message, you were telling me like even even this was like I, I had so much more to talk about. So maybe you can give us a brief introduction on the article, like what prompted you to to, to write it, and uh, then I've got plenty of questions to ask you. <laughs> Great. Well, I'll try and keep it keep it succinct then, uh, so I can kick it back to you for your questions. Um, yeah, I, obviously it's it's impossible to talk about anything like the foreign policy of a state, especially a state of such you know lengthy duration as as china in a single article and especially because of uh sort of the editorial uh strictures that i'm under which is uh you know the institute likes things to be a you know between 800 and a thousand words mm-hmm. so i mean that's that's very tight that's mm-hmm. very very close uh and so and i i really had to cut and chop and cut and chop because originally it was you know quite a bit longer i just tried to <laughs> And so I, I wound up having to lose some things that I actually thought were kind of important, but that were just too nuanced. You know, my wife said listening to me talk is horrible because it's like just parenthetical aside after parenthetical aside with qualification, <laughs> with qualification. She said, just make your initial statement 
and then you know say whatever you need to mm-hmm. uh so you know the i i think the article is is fine it's worth worth reading i think it is generally true uh you know uh that china has uh you know undergone periods of you know unity fragmentation expansion contraction you know that's all sort of just truisms generally speaking their their reach was uh cultural that it was you know a civilizational sphere uh that originated uh you know with the han chinese you know the yellow river valley thousands of years ago Mm -hmm. uh you know but one thing that i had to axe because there was just there was no way that i could keep it in there and even be close to making my word count was which i wound up being over the word count anyway (laughs) was was all of the military campaigns that that occurred during like the the 18th century for example Mm -hmm. this was when the the chinese empire reached its, its greatest territorial expanse uh, you know, so right around the time of the, I think it was actually in the year of America's founding that it did reach its, I, I could be wrong. I think I actually am wrong on that, but it's very, very close. It's some, some major date in us history. And it's kind of like intersecting take a, there. a few years, right? Yeah. It's really, it's, it's like right there in the same decade, give or take a few years. It's like, that was their greatest territorial extent. It was during the Manchu, uh, uh, Qing dynasty. Uh, you know, they started, uh, they, they had 10, uh, military campaigns that, uh, you know, they, they pushed hard into Central Asia and, uh, you know, really tried to assert state control there. And there have been some really good books written about this and how that was sort of central to sort of the state making process, solidifying the new Manchu uh, dynasty's control. Um, but it was also important because they, they fought several campaigns against, you know, uh, the Vietnamese kingdom. Korea, Taiwan, the native Taiwanese uh, during that time. And uh, there's actually a really good book that I linked in the article written by a Korean historian who said that those periods of of more aggressive Chinese uh, assertiveness were actually important to the development uh, of an independent uh, national identity, uh, which Mm -hmm. I've found that that's that's actually a common theme. It's actually Mm -hmm. a common theme. Uh, is that it is it is you know in the face of uh, aggressive uh, you know external powers that your group sort of coheres more uh, formulates its own myths you know becomes stronger for it so are you, are uh, you reading yeah. my notes or something like that man this is a good the you couldn't have given me the better segue oh um, so good go ahead <laughs> that, go ahead that's like yeah. literally one of my one of my questions I mean you, you argued in that in that article that you know, China's historical foreign policy is driven uh, more by uh, nationalism than than like a con- than the current communist ideology today. And I was wondering if maybe you can elaborate a little bit on how this perspective impacts China's international relations today. Yeah, so that was that was one of the really interesting things because I grew up in a in a Cold War household. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my grandfather was World War II in Korea, and then my dad was Vietnam. And so, and they were hardcore cold warriors. And, uh, so, you know, the communists, right. Mm -hmm. The communists, like just one monolithic, it was just the, it was this thing. And one of the things that when you read, uh, you know, the more technical scholarly literature about it, and this was even available at the time, I actually have a, a really good, uh, 
uh, I've been kind of working part of this into a chapter for the book that I'm working mm-hmm. on. And I, I have some really great uh, source material that I just I throw footnotes and they're like, hey, anyone who's interested, read this book, this book, this chapter of this book. Um, there was even like a good Rand Corporation study back in the 1960s that said, <laughs> you know, we think that there may actually be a split here going on and this was pre-nixon pre-kissinger this was just with the, the rand corporation saying it looks like the soviets and the chinese communists are fighting each other for influence in third world revolutionary movements you know <laughs> and uh yeah and and part of that goes back to uh stalin uh, really hedging uh in the chinese civil war he cut deals with chiang kai-shek he was very mm-hmm. stingy with uh you know his support for mao uh, when Mao was ultimately successful, uh, Stalin really didn't give him anything, uh, wanted all sorts of, of you know, rights and privileges uh, over Chinese territory, didn't want to renegotiate or give up any of the territory that uh, had been Chinese and which was seized by the uh, late Russian Empire of the 19th century, uh, and which, uh, you know, theoretically, I mean, I've read, I was just reading an article today by a a Ukrainian journalist who was saying that she had seen some recently published maps in a in a new Chinese textbook that showed, uh, you know, certain areas around Lake Baikal and stuff as like, you know, hey, you know, this was once Chinese and stuff. Uh, and like so, disputed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and so uh, it's it's a long frontier there, and certainly there 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 is a lot of tension there. Where is Lake Baikal specifically? I wanna I wanna look it up on on the map. Yeah, it's it's right there, and it's the big, big lake in Central Asia. There, right in the lower part of of Ru- well, Russia, um, mm-hmm. but it's, I, I believe it's in Siberia or like just adjoining it to the west. Yeah, I don't I don't have a map right in front of me, but yep. So it looks like it's it's in um, in Russia in the it's, it's literally in Russia in Eastern Russia, just above Mongolia. And so you're saying that 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 lake is being shown as like potentially ours? <laughs> yeah, according I, I haven't and I haven't seen the the text in question, but I, I I don't really have any reason to doubt this this journalist's account. Uh, you know, she wrote for the Spectator. You know, it's reasonable, but yeah, it's, don't really know what there is to gain by by saying something like that. It, and it's and you know, again, Mongolia is one of those uncomfortable ones where you know. Uh, the CCP will say uh, things about Taiwan. We have to have that back. All the mm-hmm. territory, China, sacred. One thing that you know, I always point out to people is, well, Mongolia is still sitting there, right? Right. It's not this huge, you know, move to Giant reclaim Mongolia. Exactly, exactly. And I, and I just think that you know that's one of those things where you say you know, idea ideology versus just basic state interest and state calculation, like. The Taiwan has become part of, of their nationalist ideology. Uh, and really, I think that's just a smokescreen for just basic strategic interest. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. Mongolia poses real no strategic problem for China. Right. Uh, there's only a few million people there. There's absolutely no chance the United States is going to put a military base there. It's it is totally it's landlocked. It's completely yeah. locked into China's economic uh, sphere. Uh, and also pushing on that would, you know, cause friction with, with Russia, uh, an ally at this point, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 
whereas Taiwan is, you know, completely the opposite direction, literally and figuratively. Mm -hmm. So, but just sorry to get back to what you were saying with the idea that, oh, well, the communists running Beijing, you know, the communism, you know, there's this great motivating ideology. Uh, actually, if I was just reading Mike Pompeo's State Department uh uh, press release from uh, the 19th of January, right as they were about to leave office about, uh, you know, the treatment of the Uyghurs. And they specifically mm -hmm. several times referenced the fact that they're, you know, Marxist, Leninist, Maoist, you know, just coming up with all, all the, the scariest, ists. all the yeah. scariest ists that they can come up with here. Uh -huh. And uh, it's like they're state capitalist, man. Right. They're, That's they're, the they're a, like they're, they're state capitalists. They have been my entire life, you know, and the idea that they were committed to world revolution and stuff because they helped the North Koreans and the, and the North Vietnamese, uh, you know, like that's, that's just not true. And they would turn around and fought a war against the North Vietnamese shortly right. thereafter. Right. And they only support North Korea for strategic reasons because they recognize that left all things being equal. What would have happened was the peninsula would have been unified under the South. Uh, and that that would have brought, you know, us forces right up to their border. Right. Uh, so that's so you know it it seems as as plain as day you know that and when when you for example the the Beijing Olympics, uh, it was really just a a, a huge display of of Chinese nationalism and, and Chinese tradition and stuff like that 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 was stuff that Mao thought needed to be thrown in the literal dustbin of history that that was the stuff that was holding China back, uh, you know. But now that they're, you know, state capitalist and stuff, that is the glue that makes the Chinese nationalism stick, mm -hmm. you know, and the CCP is now just another regime. And and I think their legitimacy comes from the fact that they were able to, you know, make China rich, uh, certainly a lot richer. Uh, but there's there's really nothing, nothing about the state or the way it's organized or the way it conducts its foreign policy that's you know, quote unquote, communist internationalist or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And I've spent way too much of my time reading and looking into that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, a lot of people place way too much emphasis on the labels that we identify ourselves as and not necessarily like the actuality, like the on the ground reality of, of what's going on. I mean, they, they certainly would say, yes, we are a communist, you know, government. That's that's what we are yeah sure on paper like you wrote it down you're a communist but you're acting as though <laughs> to your point a state capitalist um i wonder if if you can talk a little bit about you know uh, the the bits in your article where and you kind of brought it up a little bit but um how how these western observers you know people on our side are kind of slow to recognize that those ideological differences uh and, and the significance of communist states fighting each other you know, with this, quote, particularism, particularism, not universalism, being communism's defining feature, as was quoted in your in your article here. How has this impacted, like, the West's perception and policies towards China? I'm Jane Perlez, longtime foreign correspondent and former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. I've been a foreign correspondent in lots of places, Somalia, Indonesia, Pakistan, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I mean, China is not dropping anti-democratic paratroopers into Montana. But of course, we did see things like the weather balloon slash spy balloon riveting the whole country for a week. This is Face Off, an eight-part series in which we'll take you behind the scenes to key moments in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. 
we'll speak with a diplomat, a spy, a tech reporter, a U.S. admiral, even Yo-Yo Ma. Plus, my pal and noted China historian Rana Mitter joins the conversation. We'll look at what's driving the two nations apart and explore whether anything can help bring them back together. Face-off launches April 9th. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Well, cer- certainly it it impeded the United States having a more constructive relationship with China uh, right away. Um, uh, it, this was in part because of the tremendous purges that occurred within the U.S. Uh, foreign policy establishment following World War II, following the loss of quote unquote loss of China, following the red uh, the Red Scare. Uh, you know, the, the, the establishment came to be dominated by hawks who were, uh, who had basically tunnel vision about it. And there's all sorts of different, uh, institutional factors. If people haven't read Mike Swanson's The War State, uh, which is actually a really great account of just kind of the building of the national security apparatus, the foreign policy, the military industrial complex, like those, those things, you know, you can kind of really get the cart driving the horse there. So um, it's complicated, right? Like the, I'm not going to say there was one specific reason that policy toward China, uh, was just very, uh, you know, had the blinders on, saw them as basically just a satellite of, uh, you know, the Soviet union, uh, well into the 1960s, even when, uh, you know, there was plenty of evidence by the late 1950s to the point where the Rand corporation, which is you know right, basically the CIA's said. think mm-hmm. tank mm-hmm. is saying, uh, hello, think we're missing something here mm-hmm. um but even then i mean it, it it wasn't as though china was under mao super anxious to get on the americans because that like they they viewed it as well as balancing against the soviets because by that point uh there were sino-soviet border clashes like they were on the cusp of of, of military conflict in fact the soviets had reached out to Washington, and this is in you know just common popular history. This is well known at this point. The the Soviets under Khrushchev reached out uh, to the U.S. in the early '60s and said, "Hey, you know, if we were to you know nuke Beijing, like, would you guys object to that?" <laughs> and Washington was like, "Yeah, we would we, we would object we would object to that." And they were like, "Okay, we were just checking." Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. We were just, we were just seeing how you'd feel about that. Um, like, okay, no, how about so, Shanghai then? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, so it, and so it seems like there, and so Mao was very interested in doing that. But of course, the big sticking point there was was Taiwan. Uh, it takes almost a, almost a decade for them to work out the the actual agreements that normalize Sino American relations. Uh, you know, almost immediately thereafter. Uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, relations become complicated again because the the raison d'etre for the you know mutual beneficial agreement uh, arrangement here was was gone, and that was mm-hmm. the the shared uh, Soviet threat. 
And, uh, you know, I, I really think that the reason uh, Sino-American relations were so good, you know, so relatively good uh, during uh, my youth and, you know, young adult life was is essentially because Washington was very committed to uh, a lot of like the sort of development theory uh, thinking that dominates a lot of a lot of uh, foreign policy stuff like the idea that there are certain transformations that follow certain uh, adoptions like you know countries become richer the middle class starts to demand political rights you know yada 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 um, mm-hmm. there's plenty of good stuff there uh, you know and you can find examples where that worked uh, where that did happen um, but that did not happen with China and of course there was a there was a very large business lobby that was interested in, in doing business in China. And so I think, but I think a lot of those things have gone away. I think in Washington now there's, there's a, there is a, an, a, a pretty much an agreement that, yeah, the, the democracy is not coming to China, uh, that, that the U S business interests have realized that they're never going to get to compete in the Chinese market on anything like fair terms Mm-hmm. And so I just I feel like a lot of those those different breakers have have been removed. And so we're headed towards a period of, of much more intense confrontation. Uh, you know, in the 1950s, Eisenhower threatened to nuke China repeatedly. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, we fought an actual hot war against the Chinese in uh, Korea. Uh, you know, they were the, the Chinese were technically uh, volunteers. So we were never technically at war. They were legionnaires. Just, if you yeah, know. they were. They were. They were. All, you know, a hundred thousand volunteers. <laughs> yeah, uh, volunteers. You know, and 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 you know, and we know now that there were Russian fighter pilots fighting American fighter pilots, and like everyone was just pretending that they were North Korean planes mm-hmm. and pilots. I mean, just so there. There's plenty of precedent for for stuff getting pushed right to the edge you know they all had nukes at that point uh the the soviets didn't really have the kind of delivery capabilities that 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 we have now so it's horrifying to think about but yeah we we could really see see some stuff happen there there is precedent for it and uh so i don't know uh the the idea of a of a detente uh, I don't know. The, the, the thinking that, that motivated that was that China was the weaker of the two and that while there was friction there, you know, they, they certainly had some things in common uh, and it was just a, an attempt to kind of exploit their differences. Mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, you know, just from a power politics perspective, how Washington could could possibly try to pry uh, Russia and China apart. It seems like everything that's been done over the past five, six, seven years has has <laughs> been almost designed to push them closer together. I don't know if that was actually the plan or if if, if that's just what happened. You know, mm-hmm. the left hand didn't know what the other left hand or the right hand was doing. <laughs> the other left hand, yeah. You know, uh, to, <laughs> so to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, uh, you know, <laughs> there, there are a lot of different, you know, the, the government, the federal government, the, the military, the security apparatus, it's not all one thing. There's all these different departments, different priorities, right. different departments doing different things. I don't know if maybe it was just, I, it's hard to, it's hard to, it's hard to imagine uh, them being split apart now. Mm-hmm. I feel like we may just be in for a period of very intense tension with both. 
And it is, I, I could definitely see it being possible that, you know, 10, 15 years from now, if we're all still alive, that, you know, maybe they've soured the relationship themselves. Uh, you know, there, well, there mean, are a lot, there are a lot of, a lot of points of contention there that have kind of just been made easy up. to paper over because of, of the U S being like very aggressive, especially with, with trying to confront China now. Uh, mm -hmm. whereas it's like, man, they, they're naturally, they, they've, hundreds of years of bad blood between them, you know, centuries of bad blood, longer than the U.S. has even been around. Uh, so it, it should be easy to pry them apart theoretically, but, and to make friends, but. Well, I mean, we're, we're missing out on that, you know, universal fear of communists taking over the world because Russia is no longer a communist nation. You know, they might act like, you know, a fascist state, but they're not they're not communist anymore, right? And the China Biden administration still. tried to replace it with a rhetorical device that didn't really work, right? R Democracy versus authoritarianism. Oh, yeah. It you didn't know? roll off the tongue quite as well. And it didn't <laughs> work very good because it was very obvious right away that, like, wait a minute, who's on mm -hmm. the U.S.'s client payroll here? You know, like, <laughs> yeah. it just didn't work. I don't even I don't even hear them trying that anymore. Right, um, yeah. Because there isn't an ism that they can ascribe to to that unholy unity of, of Russia and China, you know. Uh, as you pointed out b back in the day, everyone was thinking, "Hey, communism's taking over." You lived in a in a cold warrior, you know, household. It was all about you know fighting the commies, and now that co like commies aren't a functional thing right now, you know, I mean, Soviet Union doesn't exist anymore. Russia is now Russia. And uh, China is still technically communist, but, you know, not really, <laughs> right? Like not in action, on principle. So, yeah, I mean, their Gini coefficient is all basically as high as the United States. I mean, Right, <laughs> right, exactly. So like now that this narrative is kind of shifting, right, because we can't pull the communism card, I wonder what, what changes can we expect as this narrative shifts? I mean, we, we kind of discussed a little bit of, of the oopsie that the West has made and pushing them back together you know, uh, through the various, <laughs> uh, things that we've done and, and, and reactions that we've had, frankly, uh, uh, from things that they've done. Right. So mm -hmm. it's not just literally our own policies that have pushed them together, but also just our reactions to their policies, uh, and, and their actions. So yeah. what, what changes now? Like, are, are we going to slap a new ism on this and, and then just try and unify the world against them or, what happens well, next? I, I think you make an interesting point there about, you know, it's not just the policies that our government has pursued. It's, you know, just as a matter of course, part of it is them pursuing policies and Washington reacting to them. So right. going back to the 1990s and the, the third Taiwan Straits crisis, Beijing viewed what was happening there as a violation of the spirit, if not the letter of the agreements uh, that led to the normalization of relations. The U.S. response to their actions prompted them to engage in a, in a military buildup, a military right. revolution of their own, which mm -hmm. we're now seeing the fruits of. Mm -hmm. China also uh, began in the in the late late aughts, early teens, early twenty teens, uh, to really become more assertive in the South China Sea. Um, there were a lot of outstanding territorial disputes there and there still are. And I mean, I'm not even going to get into them all, but I mean like Vietnam, uh, you know, Thailand, 
the Philippines, Japan, you know, mm -hmm. all sorts of different little. And the reason that they're arguing over these rocks is because yeah. of, you know what I'm going to say here, the, the, the exclusive economic zone right. that comes from these things. <laughs> exactly. So you get to take up a huge chunk of territory. And what they want is the natural gas and oil that is you know, at the bottom of the South China Sea here. Mm -hmm. So it's it's not really even about like, oh, yeah, I, they would just want to build a bunch of military bases on these tiny rocks. Not really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all I mean, close it enough the to the territory, right? Because they kind right. of they need like, to I mean, their territory. Right. I mean, they'll probably build a few small naval outposts, you know, like like on the shoals, the little man-made islands that they've built and stuff. But mm -hmm. really, like all of these are close enough to China's own coast. I mean, these are, you know, couple hundred miles from from mainland china that right. a they're 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 uh they're uh sorry they're anti-ship missiles that are located on the mainland can easily you know hit any of those and right. also they're in the process of floating you know a pretty substantial blue water navy so i mean mm -hmm. it, it'd be like why doesn't the united states have a bunch of little tiny uh you know naval stations all over the gulf of mexico it's right. just not necessary. Right. It's just not necessary. Uh, so, yeah, gosh, uh, that that's really like the the hot zone. Everyone knows that. Um, boy, I don't know. I don't know. Because uh, <laughs> certainly everyone feels very justified in taking the positions that they do. Everyone points to this agreement, that agreement, that treaty, this treaty this ancient document, this claim, that claim. And it's like, I get it, you know, uh, <laughs> the resources, everybody wants them. Uh, theoretically speaking, it shouldn't matter who controls them because they should all be for sale. Mm -hmm. Uh, but again, you know, there's the control. China, the sale China has is, no, uh... China has very little oil. Like China yeah. is hugely dependent on oil and gas imports. Mm -hmm. And so they're very sensitive to this stuff. Right. Uh, if you read any of their like military planning stuff, they're very obsessed with like a Malacca Strait or Hormuz Strait dilemma because right. they recognize that all that oil could get shut off to them in, in a heartbeat. Right. Uh, yeah. The control of the sale really, whether it's through, you know, uh, external influences or, or just straight up a country decides they just don't want to do business with them anymore and we're not going to yeah. sell you any oil. You know, uh, that is, that is up there. There's a power there. Now the smarter move, and, and I do see China doing this is, is pursuing, uh, energy from alternate sources. Uh, one thing I do applaud China in doing is, is ramping up nuclear production, uh, and not for like weapons and bombs and stuff. They got plenty of that stuff. They don't need any more. Um, it's, it's things like thorium reactors that really excite me that we barely have any of, and that they've built 18 or something like that in the last few years. Uh, these are resources, thorium specifically, uh, uh, is a, is an isotope that, that we can pull, we can pull pretty much any, almost, you know, almost the entire planet has reserves of thorium uh, or, that, or that can be synthesized. So, you know, if we're talking about if I was China, I'd just be pursuing that rather than oil. But I understand that that's a long game. And so it makes sense in the short term, uh, the very immediate sense, uh, to go after these these little rocks in the middle of the water that might be, you know, 12 miles around uh, uh, some natural gas or oil deposits that they can extract right now. 
Um, so it makes a ton of sense and, to me. No, that does. And at, to your point about, you know, having better alternatives for the long term, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. And I think we also need to pay attention to, to a sort of ideological element to the South China Sea conflicts. And that is that she has really stoked a lot of very ardent Chinese nationalism. Mm-hmm. And of course, the South China Sea was, you know, historical. It's the South China Sea. Right, not, not the South, the South Japan South... Sea. Exactly. Mm-hmm. And it really, over the past, you know, 300 years, really, they have completely lost control uh, of that region. And so, you know, still having the United States right up in their face right there, it, it is a point of real... Uh, ideological contention um there are so many people you know just like in our own media establishment in our own uh you know commentariat who are way more hardline who are way more hawkish than the people who actually make the decisions thank goodness um but there's you know there's all sorts of possibilities for uh you know close calls you know just the other day we saw you know I think it was yesterday, actually. It was yesterday, uh, the, the fighter jet that was like a thousand feet from the aircraft yeah. carrier. That's Which nuts. like a thousand feet is really close. Right. Like these planes are moving very fast. They cover a thousand feet, you know, in a second here. Right. I mean, this is real close stuff, you know. And uh, 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 I was just a kid when this happened, but there was the Hainan Island uh, downing of the U.S. Uh, spy plane. It was literally the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. A Chinese jet tried to intercept it and buzzed it just a little bit too close. There was a collision. You know, people can read about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was during the early George W. Bush years. I mean, something like that couldn't be diffused today. I'm quite right. quite positive. Something like it's that could not be diffused today. That's very irresponsible because an aircraft carrier, it's not like, oh, I didn't notice the aircraft carrier. It's a fucking aircraft carrier, right? The thing is absolutely massive. It shows up on every like every type of sensor and and also just your your eyes right so this was an intentional move right somebody decided like hey i'm gonna buzz an aircraft carrier within a thousand feet and i just think that's a little stupid in my opinion i don't i don't understand the play i don't i don't see how how they win with that well uh you know again and part of it too is uh you know like when the the you know the quote-unquote spy balloon thing was going on Mm -hmm. you know one of the things that alien i do what you mean the alien the the, yeah the alien uh the alien weather balloon Mm -hmm. one of the things that struck me as very short-sighted about the u.s response was i thought it would have been interesting for them to have opened the the possibility to to see if if she would have taken the opportunity to do like a george w bush like write a like we are very very sorry for doing this right you know and Mm -hmm. because you know what was that done on on she's orders what what i mean it was it happened so close to that big meeting when blinken was going to go over and it completely blew that meeting up right you know was that something where you know the right hand doesn't know what the further right hand is doing like some hawks you know in who are more hard line than she were just like yeah just you know steer it over there you know yeah well, just because the Americans will freak out and, you know, and then they won't come and, you know, it'll there will be no detente. We don't want the relationship cooling off. Mm-hmm. You know, we like it going the way it's going, mm-hmm. you know, because when Nancy Pelosi uh, made her visit to Taiwan. Right. You know, again, you know, it's much like much like uh, Russian social media. You that they're not going to censor you for saying, well, you should have done even more than you did. Right. You know? They censor mm-hmm. people more for saying, oh, you know, the regime is bad and we don't want them to do that. Like if you're someone who's like, 
no, the regime needs to do even more, you know, be even tougher, be even more hardline. Right. You know, that stuff tends to not get censored. Right. And so, you know, there were people calling for like, just shoot her plane out of the sky. I know like, how oh, ridiculous oh my God. of an idea is that. First of all, loss of human life. I don't care if it, if you don't like Nancy Pelosi, that's not, it's just not okay, period. And second of all, this is like a very high-ranking U.S. official, you know, the third highest-ranking U.S. official. Yeah, like, like this is not this even is, this isn't you know the 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 garbage man, right? Like this is yeah. this is that's a an act of war. Um, yeah, and I think I think this is kind of part and parcel as you're you know bringing this up with with the idea of this this very strong you know, rousing of the population that she is doing under this nationalist rhetoric. And I was wondering if, if you can talk maybe just a little bit more about, you know, how this, this nationalist discourse affects China's domestic and foreign policy decision making. As an example, send a balloon over to go torpedo the, <laughs> the Blinken meeting, you know? Yeah. Uh, well, in the article, I talk about how by the time the West sort of really gets into China, trying to open China up uh, in the late, gosh, let's see, the late 18th, early 19th centuries, uh, China is very inward looking at this point. As I said, they've, they've reached their, their point of greatest territorial extent. Mm -hmm. um, they were you know, by far the richest, most developed state uh, on earth. Uh, around the time of, I, I can't remember the statistic, but it was something like in, in 1690, they accounted for like 50% of world GDP or something like that, <laughs> whatever <laughs> those numbers are worth, insane. but it was just something crazy, you know, like they had invented movable type, you know, ages before the West, you mm -hmm. know, gunpowder, all that different stuff, mm -hmm. you know, when the West first showed up trying to trade with, you know. The Chinese court, they're like, what are you even doing here? Like, we right. don't want any of that crap. Right. Like, you know, what are you doing? Uh, you know, so uh, one of the only things that the British could really sell was was opium. Uh, yeah, and of opium course, wars. you know, mm -hmm. the opium wars. So and and by that point, uh, the, the the Chinese state had, had started to atrophy and had not kept pace with certain uh, techno technological and military developments. Uh that the West had already undergone uh, because of the very intensive competitive environment uh, of Europe. Mm -hmm. Europe, uh, one book that I always recommend people read is, is either Paul Kennedy's Rise of All the Great Powers because there's several great chapters on warfare and inter-European warfare in that book that talk about these things. And also Charles Tilley's um, Capital Coercion and European State Formation, which talks a lot about that pressure to fight wars and to concentrate resources and you know adopt new developments and new technologies because it could help you win wars. Mm -hmm. uh, China was just so big and so powerful that like there was just no need for that and they had been you know effectively able to sort of civilizationally and economically dominate their region uh well the century of humiliation is something that uh you know from about 1848 to 1950 you know it's it's a huge thing it's it's an absolutely huge thing it's in all the textbooks it's a it's more than just a rhetorical device i mean people's grandparents lived through this mm -hmm. uh the tail the tail ends of this i mean it was i mean it was uh, war, rebellion, more rebellion, more war, defeat, defeat. I mean, millions and millions of people getting killed in these internal rebellions and civil wars, you know, like a, a, a new warring states period, a warlord period. 
the Sino-Japanese Wars, two of those, uh, the Civil War. I mean, it's just horrifying. It was like the worst century. It, it, I mean, if you could pick a, pl- a place not to be, I mean, China during <laughs> yeah. the, that hundred years there, I mean, like that was really one of the places where you would not have wanted to have been, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I mean, it's tough. And so Mao, uh, you know, kind of his whole idea was like he had he and the communists had made China strong, that they were the ones who were modernizing China, that they were the ones who had kicked out the, you know, imperialist Western aggressors. And that, and, and that, you know, is, is in some sense a legitimating device. And so that is used by the CCP leadership today. And, you know, uh, those who control the present control the past, right? Mm, uh, yeah. The old Orwell, the old Orwell quote. Right. Uh, there is, there is a lot of truth to that though. Uh, and especially to the stories that China tells about itself and how it was treated during that time. Now, you know, if you want to say, well, that was part and parcel, that's just, you know, that's just how states behave. You know, the Mm -hmm. strong do as they will and the weak suffer as they must. You know, that's fine, but, uh, you know, the Chinese have been around for a very, very long time. And to them, that was a momentary blip. Right, a drop in the bucket. That was was a drop in the bucket. Uh, You know, the West was strong. But now this uh, now the West looks like it's in decline. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that you've seen a lot in it. You know, as I've gone back and started looking through journals and, you know, op eds and, and pieces like that going back, uh, starting in the in the in the late 2000s, after the great financial crisis, after the second Iraq war, after the Afghanistan war, you start to see a lot of this declinism that like America, the West, they're in decline, that China is reascendant, you know, that that, that was all that that, that 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 century of humiliation, that was just a blip. Um, and so, you know, how much of that is for propaganda purposes? Uh, well, it's hard to say. But one of the parallels that strikes me as interesting is is the the first germ is the uh, what the, I don't know if they call it the first second, which German empire do they call it? Well, anyway, it was the German Empire under the Kaiser. Mm-hmm. Who essentially created this national fervor, these expectations that uh, ultimately, ultimately, it looked like were going to be disappointed, and which caused uh, he and his general staff to engage in a series of brinksmanship-style gambles. And uh, one thing, one of the things that that strikes me is everyone always says they never expected the war they got when they got it. It's like, well, <laughs> what did you expect after doing what, what you, did? you know, we expected a small local war, but we were willing to tolerate a medium sized regional war. And what we got instead was a global conflagration. And it's right. like, well, you know, that'll happen. I mean, can we learn from these things? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, people still talk about it like, well, we could fight a very limited engagement with the Chinese over Taiwan, <laughs> you know, uh, and, you know, they war game it out. They plan it out. You know, the, the Center for Strategic Studies just uh, just two months ago actually released uh, some where they said they think that uh, the U.S. and Japan and Taiwan would, you know, quote unquote, win, uh, that they could deny the Chinese uh, a landing, uh, but that it was going to cost most of the Pacific fleet, most of the airplanes, tens of thousands of American lives. And it's like, whoa, and how many trillions of dollars? Hold on a second here. Like, this is our limited engagement here. Like, are you, you actually think that if, if tens of thousands of Americans are getting killed, that Washington's just going to leave it at that? Like, Mm. that's, that's not how, how I remember it going 
in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, so how I don't know. How many people died in 9-11 and how many millions have died in the wars that, that happened since? A study That's, just yeah. came out recently uh, a couple weeks ago that I've been reviewing uh, yeah. that we might do an episode on that talks about like something like the death toll is like four and a half million and that's of what we can tell right yeah which to me seemed low right i mean it was horrifying to read but just my initial impression was like it just seems low Mm -hmm. how do you even count how do you even count the damage that those things have done you know well that's part of what the paper kind of discusses it's like should we start including the ancillary deaths right so not just the direct deaths the people who were in combat the people who were were uh, blown up or even the civilian civilian casualties, you know, collateral damage, but also, hey, we blew up a hospital and somebody got sick and therefore couldn't go to that hospital. So exactly. they died. Do they count or do they not count? And I think that that whole study comes to a conclusion that like we might be able to ascribe almost every death in that region after 9-11 to 9-11, you know? Yeah, I mean, when you talk about the rise in, for example, infant mortality mm-hmm. and the decline in life expectancy, right. I mean, talking about, you know, as an American, one of the things that stood out to me when the Russians, you know, invaded Ukraine was, why aren't they blowing up all their infrastructure and all that stuff? Because I'm used to that's how the Americans fight their wars. Right, right. You know, it's like, well, first you just destroy anything that could sustain human life. Right. All the and bridges, then you all the roll power plants, there. everything yeah. else. And then you roll in there. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So in a very messed up kind of way, it seemed more civilized, you know, than how the Americans, you know, rolled into Iraq, you know, targeting, you know, water supplies, electricity, you know. But... Yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it's it seems like that, that paper the, was yeah that study was interesting, and I was also I didn't get a chance to make it all the way through to the methodological sections and really get down into the nitty gritty. But like, did they include Somalia, yeah, Libya, that, um, Yemen? That is about where I started tuning out as well. <laughs> so um, so I, unclear. I can't I can't speak to that, um, but. It's just fascinating, and, and I'm, I'm still working through it. And like I said, I, I think that might make its way into a slot here on Bro History soon. But um, that would definitely be, be interesting. And I, I, you know, I, I told you before we started, I've just been so busy with the, with the book and with other things. I've just got this pile of, you know, save it, save it, save it, save it. Yeah, so yeah, the rest of the like summer is going to be stuff. very, very busy after we get, get the book done here. So For sure. But, but I, I mean, I think it's it's fascinating as 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 a you know kind of coming back to China. It's like, okay, well, all these little steps that you take, you know, like buzzing a, a, an aircraft carrier with a jet within a thousand feet. You know, what are they thinking? You know, and then on our side, what are we thinking? Limited engagement in Taiwan. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea because we really need a box in China. Um, we really need those microchips. Actually, we legitimately do need those microchips. So <laughs> uh, we need to solve that problem. I don't know, man. It's it's some fascinating yeah, the, stuff. Okay, so the chips. Yeah, the chips. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the one of the things that gets raised a lot, mm-hmm. and that I think is a perfectly valid point. Uh, can say whatever you want about why. <laughs> why it was that 90% of the world's microchips were being made on, you know, this 
It's one little this one island, island yeah. that was you know technically part of China, you know, and that. Uh, but you know, whatever. What's done is done. Foregone conclusion. Yeah. For you know, okay, all right. Uh, I would just say you know. Yes, they are trying to friendshore and reshore that capacity. Uh, that's going to take some time. In the meantime, I, you know, I've, I've said repeatedly, like, I don't see that China wants, to, I don't, just don't see that it's in China's, mainland China's interest to invade Taiwan. I mean, the status quo has worked just fine. They're one another's biggest trading partners. Uh, you know, those fabs would never survive an invasion. I think no. I had said it last year on the, when I was talking to you guys, like the U.S. would blow those things up. Right. You or know, Taiwan before they let themselves, China, yeah. or Taiwan would do it themselves. And like now it's openly talked about, like, well, of course we would just bomb those things mm -hmm. rather than let China get them. Mm -hmm. You know, I think one of the things that's been going on in the background that's really alarming uh, is is the the campaign by the United States to coordinate uh a strategy of denial uh, for these microchips to keep that advanced lithography equipment away from China and to keep China from getting those those high-grade chips coordinating with the the Dutch and the British and the Koreans and the Japanese um, and you saw maybe you didn't see this but a couple weeks ago China retaliated by placing sanctions on a US company mm-hmm uh, and, and of course, Washington, you know, issued a statement saying like, this is just completely unacceptable. And it's <laughs> like, like well, <laughs> guys, come on. Like they were playing a game here now, right? Like this is not cool. This is not cool at all. Uh, so well, I don't know. Fascinating on that chip bit. I, I was reading a, an article before, uh, jumping on today talking about how, um, Taiwanese, uh, companies are, are going so far as to not let like Chinese students work in their, um, in their, uh, chip fabs because they don't want them to steal, yeah. you know, chip technology. Uh, so it's like getting down to like research students too, you know, like forget brain drain. Like we don't even want you because you're Chinese. <laughs> there, there's been an aggressive campaign in the United States going on for years to purge Chinese academics, you know, and it's, uh, it actually, there was this. There, this has been going on for a while, but there was a letter that was put forth a few months ago uh, by this this collection of of research colleges and stuff that were saying like, "Look, uh, you know, dear federal government, you've really got to stop doing this." Like, we understand why you wanted to do this, but it's led to a lot of just basic profiling, and it's led to a real drop off in in qualified, you know professors and students wanting to to come and work here mm -hmm. uh and i think it's it's very telling when you look statistically at at stem performance and who's you know whose students are excelling and where and why mm -hmm. uh the united states is just not uh producing top caliber stem students uh comparatively so no. uh yeah it's it's really it's incredible to see the decline uh, across the board there but we really don't. We really can't get into all our own problems or we'll be here for the rest of the evening. But uh, no, uh, just to kind of bring it around, I guess, just the, the, the idea that China has legitimate interests, that they are national interests, that they are easy to discern, that you can look at how they've behaved in the past, that they kind of view that area 
as a long-term like sinosphere. And this was recognized mm-hmm. even by the most statist of American thinkers like Samuel Huntington. Right. Samuel Huntington, author of the Trilateral Commission Report mm-hmm. in Clash of Civilizations in the 1990s. He wrote, I don't have it in front of me, but I think I cite it in the article or in the book chapter. I don't remember which. But I think I have that in front of me. Let me see if I... If did I, I cite it in the article? Okay. Yeah, I think you did. I had some quotes. As Samuel Huntington observed in 1996, a reconstituted and powerful China interested in resurrecting its classical sphere of influence was already a cultural and economic reality in the process of becoming a political one. You want to explain uh, that process of becoming a political uh, um, reality? Yes. Uh, doing the institution building, uh, building, you know, the Asian infrastructure bank, you know, building alternative institutions that China controlled and which could be used to exert political. I'm going to say control. I don't want that to sound like pejorative, but like it's just a fact. Right. right? It's just a fact that that's how these institutions work, like the IMF. Who has the power in the IMF? The United States has the power in the IMF, Correct. right? Like mm-hmm. we don't say it that like that, but like it's understood. Right. It's understood who really makes the rules there, who who controls the power, and so uh, you know you have to have institutions for constructively wielding your influence, uh, and that's what China needed to build at that point, and that's what, for example, the Belt and Road is a good example mm-hmm. of kind of the sort of political institutional structure and relationship that you need to exert that kind of influence. Mm-hmm. And even so. the digital Silk Road uh, that's, yeah, that's relatively yeah. new, which is kind of along the same lines, but just online, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's 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 hard to tell for me where to go because on the one hand you know you you want you want to be able to have the the kinds of dialogue uh you know that you point out that that fdr did with stalin and and that nixon did with mao you you want to be able to have this kind of dialogue but on the other hand it doesn't seem like anyone's acting in good faith right um on both sides frankly so you did conclude your article talking about that, you know, American leaders should be able to negotiate with people like she, right? Or even Putin, you pointed out, right? Which, which I'm all, I'm all open to, to talking, but, you know, it's easier said than done, I feel like, right? At this point, I feel like so many things have been done that, that I would not have done uh, that were just not necessary. Like, it never, it never had to be this way. Mm-hmm. Like, were the Russians going to meddle in the politics of the countries directly adjoining them? Yes. Is that, you know, a violation of core American interests? Is that a reason to blow up our relationship with Russia to endanger the European union? You know, like, no, not in my opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, same with China, like Taiwan has been an outstanding issue for many, many decades now. Uh, does it need resolving? And there's no pressure that I can see. I mean, even the idea that there's pressure from the Taiwanese to have it resolved, like that is largely, uh, you know, a, a figment of, of Western of the Western press. Like yeah, there is a whole nother, right? mm-hmm. there is a whole nother political party in Taiwan that doesn't want anything to do with independence. Right. And they just cleaned house in the local elections last year. And it'll be interesting to see whether or not they take the presidency mm-hmm. in this coming election uh, in 2024, I believe it is. So, 
I, you know, the cynic in me thinks, you know, is is Washington trying to provoke a conflict now because they think that the clock is running against them, that China will only be more powerful uh, in the future, and that maybe if they can provoke Xi into doing it now and he loses, it will destroy the regime. Uh, to me, I, I, we, we've talked about this in other episodes. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like the clock is running completely the opposite way. Right. I think, I think time favors. Yeah, exactly. I think time only favors, you know, uh, the West and, and, and Taiwan's independence, frankly. Um, just, yeah, just let, let China sink and flounder under all the problems that it has. You know, I don't wish ill on, you know, them. Because obviously state collapse, uh, nothing good happens uh, no. when your state collapses. So, right. and it's you know, not, and it's I not just have a lot of libertarian friends who are like, yeah, let's have the state collapse. It's like, well, careful what you wish for. Right. Like, it's, I can't find any examples in history where it goes well at all. So, And it's, it's not just like limited to them either, right? China's so deeply entwined in the global economy that oh, they yeah, rely it'd be on bad us for everybody. and we yeah. rely on them, you know. For a while, oh yeah, you know, Walmart so. would be very empty tomorrow. <laughs> Walmart, yeah, Walmart would be very, very empty. Wish.com so. would just immediately evaporate, <laughs> you know. Um, so, yeah, man. I mean, I, but I, there are there are huge costs to this increased, uh, you know, uh, in the the relationship between the U.S. and China getting bad has costs that aren't even really seen and calculated like the idea Mm -hmm. of people of corporations um you know investing in setting up like backup supply lines and stuff like that's all you know redundant that's all redundancy Mm -hmm. you know like relocating or doubling their operations in other places like that's that's all just economic redundancy like that's all cost that could be used in, you know, research and development of other things, right. you know, put into more human resources, mm-hmm. you know, different things. Like there are a lot of costs to this stuff. And, and, and all we got to do is bullet- just not be aggressive with one another. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, it's like you said, it's not all one sided. And certainly uh, the Chinese have become much more assertive in the South China Sea. Mm-hmm. So, it's not like they're going to stop. I feel like they've built up a narrative of, you know, Chinese power, Chinese century on the march that I feel like there there is an expectation at this point that they are going to deliver, that they're not going to be cowed uh, by the United States. And this is not something new. Mao, of course, was famous for freaking out the Soviets because he said openly that, like, eh, let them have a nuclear war with us. We don't care if the Americans start trying to nuclear bomb us. We'll just retreat into the hills. There's a billion of us. You can't nuke us all. Right. We'll be fine. You know. That's nuts. So, yeah. So, so there is a a a a tradition of that. Uh, you know. So, I don't think that China is you know. Sir, and that was when they were poor mm. and had no navy and no nukes and no missiles or anything. Well, actually, I think that, was, that kind so, of was to their credit to be poor, right? Because they got nothing to lose, right? That's, now, that's true. They do have something to lose now. Right, right. But will they lose it if they are seen to not be pursuing uh, China's interests mm-hmm. to the fullest extent that they can? So this is not a good yeah, it's not a good situation that, that we're in here. Mm-hmm. So 
but not to like freak I, you out about it either right go about your yeah, lives right. and, and yeah and don't just worry try, so try to live try to live your lives you know <laughs> encourage moderation encourage compromise encourage patience dialogue uh dialogue you know obviously if you're reading the press right now you'll know that uh beijing have basically said no to repeated u.s efforts to get on the phone to get face to face to talk um, this is kind of reminiscent to what's happened to a few administrations, uh, going back to George W. Bush, uh, going back to Clinton, there were, you know, we're going to get real tough with China. Uh, you know, we're going to do this, we're going to do that. And then eventually, you know, and, and China would basically just like ignore the phone and be like, look, until you do this, this, and this, we're not going to pick up the phone. Mm-hmm. And eventually the United States would come around to being like, well, we do kind of need them to do this and this for us. And, you know, we need their cooperation on this and that. You know, uh, we'll, we'll see whether or not the they're able to reestablish contact. But it's certainly scary to know that they're not talking, um, especially as you pointed out. There have been a lot of close calls. There was that uh, that surveillance plane the other day. That's the one that really that really freaks me out because there's there's been plenty of incidents like that that have happened. So I mean, but, it, all it takes is just one mistake, right? Yeah. And with with relations being so bad and with them not talking, like there's just no basis for something constructive to happen in a situation like that now. Mm-hmm. So, but everyone live your lives, be cool, be calm, but also encourage your respective governments to be cool. Uh, so that's basically that's basically my only recommendation. Just like, chill don't out. Don't encourage, <laughs> don't encourage the hawks. Um, you know. Doesn't need to come to a fight. Right. Doesn't need to. Hasn't come to a fight. We can just keep doing what we've been doing. and we can. It can just keep going, and we'll just see whose system can outlast whose. Right. So. Let's run the I marathon, mean, I, not the 500-meter exactly, dash rate. Exactly. So. Well, you know, I, I don't remember if we were talking about this before we started the show or after, um, but I'm struggling to paraphrase you, Joe. <laughs> You were thinking about writing or, or doing um, some some uh, 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 research on how we need equality before um, before everything else, and that how how we don't play by we I mean the United States don't play by a global set of rules, right? Like nobody can enforce our rules, uh, uh, international laws and things like that on the United States because we're just going to ignore it. So kind of bringing this full circle you know that seems to me to be one one of the gripes that that countries like china have that countries like um you know uh, russia have kind of bringing us back to a multipolar world rather than a, a the unipolar one that we've been experiencing for at least the last 30 years or so so my proposition is that we take all this money that we're spending on these limited engagements that we're proposing, right, that kill tens of thousands of people, and we dump it into these UAP programs. <laughs> Here's why. <laughs> Here's why. Because <laughs> when we find the aliens that have the capability of traveling across the vast distances of space, uh, now suddenly we have uh, an authority <laughs> to, to regulate a bit so i will come full circle on aliens i think we need aliens to resolve this issue (laughs) that has that has been historically what has produced the cohesive movements uh you know 
towards national cohesion and mm-hmm. state building. That's that's certainly true. So maybe we need an alien invasion to get us all on the same page. Right, right. Or even I think just honestly the the it, let's pretend for a moment that the CIA or the the global dark governments around the world know that aliens exist. If it got out globally that indeed they do exist, I think we wouldn't even need the invasion. Just the existence, the mere existence and the knowledge of the existence of of extraterrestrial beings is going to shake things up quite a bit. I don't even think we need the invasion. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. We all know how important it is to keep your eye on the money and not just your own. To follow trends, track financial situations, follow gains and losses, check out the Yahoo Finance Podcast. Every day, we'll give you a quick overview of the latest market and financial news that you need to know. You'll be able to hear about the biggest headlines in the business world in three minutes or less, right after markets close. It's perfect to listen to while you make another cup of coffee or work out a new budget. Check it out now. Listen to Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. That's Yahoo Finance wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, I would certainly prefer it to happen without the invasion because if they can travel through interstellar space, they're going to liquefy us in a heartbeat. (laughs) Yeah, they don't stand (laughs) a chance. Yeah. No, I'm with you. Put up a really interesting fight, though, I tell you that. Can you imagine those space battles that we'd be waging with the technology that we probably said that we didn't have? (laughs) (laughs) So that's where all the money was going. Right. (laughs) Uh, I'm, I'm reminded of a film... Uh, I wonder if you've ever seen it. Iron Sky. Have you have you seen this film? It's kind of an indie cult classic kind of film. And the premise of the film is that the Nazis during um, during uh, World War Two actually had a fairly advanced space program uh, and were able to, uh, you know, much like how many Nazis escaped to places like South America, Argentina, places like that, that actually a group of them went to the dark side of the moon. Right. And it's set in like a, you know, recent uh, uh, time period where, you know, we've got a, a Sarah Palin type character running for president. And oh, uh, and uh, suddenly uh, the, the moon Nazis reveal themselves. Right. And they come over over here. And now the whole world has to fight against the moon Nazis who, you know, somehow have been able to manage to live on the moon all this time. Um, so, yeah, moon Nazis. Sarah Palin versus the moon Nazis. Yeah. Someone please make that movie. They've, they've made it. <laughs> it's called Iron Sky. Go watch it. Iron Sky. Yeah. Watch it, people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a funny one. It's absolutely hilarious. 
All right, man. So, you know, I, I've held you up for, I think, longer than, um, than I should have. Thank you again for coming on the show and for, you know, being a, a, a good fill in for myself last time around and also for Henry this time around. Uh, we really appreciate you. I want to give you a few minutes here to just go ahead and plug all the stuff uh, for you so people know where to find you and your work. Um, but go for it. Uh, sure. So uh, I'm at the Libertarian Institute now. Uh, I write a weekly column there. It's mostly focused on China. Uh, they do let me do the occasional uh, piece on things like... Uh, Aliens? They, <laughs> I, I, do, <laughs> not, I haven't asked them, but I'm sure they would let me if I could, if I could put something together that was, that was good. Uh, no, I do a lot of writing about like late 19th century, early 20th century uh, U.S. politics and foreign policy. I think those are some of the least understood, least appreciated... Uh, these were these were highly transformative and intertwined. But I, yeah. Anyway, you can check them out on the Libertarian Institute. I've I've put out a few of them already. One of them about the Spanish American War. But there, there's another piece that I'm working on right now about just a variety of interlocking crises that that happened and that were dealt with uh, around that time during like the Cleveland and McKinley and then uh, first Roosevelt uh, administration. Uh, I'm working on a book that's going to be coming out. I'm actually I've been working on the final draft of it, the final edits, which I'm supposed to have to Keith tomorrow, <laughs> uh, the fake China threat and it's very real danger. So that'll be coming out this year. Uh, and then as you were saying, I'm, I'm working on this, this piece for this journal called Isonomia and, uh, Isonomia is the Greek concept of equality before the law. That's the word and I was one of the for. <laughs> problems. Yeah. And one of the problems and one of the problems of course, is that there is that liberalism works within states because there is an authority to enforce contracts and and wield the stick and, and of course the great problem of international relations is that you can't have work global liberalism because you don't have a global rights enforcing uh mechanism uh you know the united states refuses to acknowledge the uh you know legitimacy of you know courts which it you know shames others for example for not listening to right uh, so it's a problem. As we say, and, not as we do. <laughs> yes, precisely. So, and and that, as you said, that is a problem because, uh, you know, it could have been different at the end of the the Cold War. You know, the New World Order. You know, had the United States been willing to be bound, uh, to follow its own rules, uh, and, you know, maybe things would have been a little different. But certainly, uh, several conflicts in the '90s, and then you know, the George W. Bush. I often wonder. Did the Florida Supreme Court ruin the world? Like, would Al Gore really have destroyed the empire this way? That's like, George W. Bush was such a raging idiot. Mm -hmm. And everyone surrounding him was just a just the biggest bunch of, of highly qualified idiots. Right. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, these were the people who his dad literally would not let anywhere near serious parts of policy like they were just they were supposed to just run death squads in central america that was all they were allowed to do right you know and they just had the run of the roost under george w bush and they just destroyed everything and so now here we are so not saying the empire would have been would have been perfect far from it how about the and alternate reality us anyway. alternate reality yeah. where it still happened under al gore and george bush became like a climate like uh uh <laughs> activist that would be the interesting. Yeah, the inconvenient truth. Right. By, 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 by George W. Bush. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
but anyway so yeah that's that's kind of what i'm what i'm working on and and so yeah you can look for that stuff follow me on twitter at solis underscore mullen that's where i post everything and so yeah happy to fill in for you guys uh really happy for for henry obviously it was great talking to you thanks for having me likewise uh if you've listened this far into the show uh the best way to support the show is of course to Go ahead and subscribe and rate and review uh, our show. It's the best way to help us move forward. Uh, we also have a brand new website that you can go and check out. We've got blog posts and all of our content on there as well. Uh, thanks so much for listening, and we'll catch you again next time. Peace. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.